coming up on Philosophy Talk. I've been appointed by head office as your new country director for Kenya. Now, as your director, I'm here to make that difference, that change for Africa. Foreign aid or injury? Maybe foreign aid programs don't always work exactly the way we want them to. But aren't they still deeply valuable? I've worked for my mother's NGO since I was six years old. Isn't the real question, what's the right way for developed nations to fight global poverty? Sometimes a good acronym can win a grant just like that. Take last year's winning one, for example. Building real infrastructure, bringing enterprise to societies, which is bribes. That didn't help anyone. Foreign aid or injury. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thank you for listening to this episode of Philosophy Talk. Learn more about the program by getting our monthly newsletter. Just text the word philosophy to 22828. That's 22828. And get access to our library of more than 500 episodes by becoming a subscriber at our website, philosophytalk.org. Now, on with the show. Do we have a duty to help developing nations escape poverty? Doesn't foreign aid do more harm than good? Well, is there a better way to end poverty around the world? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Deborah Satz. And we're here in the studios of KALW in San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where I teach philosophy and where Deborah has recently become Stanford's Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Congratulations on your promotion, Deborah. Thank you. So today we're going to be thinking about the ethics of foreign aid. Well, you know, Deborah, I really don't like that term, foreign aid, because, you know, it makes it sound like we're giving, I don't know, freeloading countries undeserved handouts or something, sort of like the international version of welfare payments. But, you know, it's not a matter of charity. It's a matter of justice. We owe it to developing countries to help them escape poverty. Why do you say that? Well, because just look at what we've done to the world, Deborah. We've despoiled the planet. We've stolen natural resources like oil and gas right out from under the noses of many foreign nations. We've propped up corrupt, oppressive regimes, funded dictators and warlords around the globe. And why did we do that? Well, not out of charity, all for our own economic wait, gain. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on a second. Surely you can't place all the blame for the world's ills on the United States. Well, no, I actually, I don't. You're right there. Well, there's the UK. They were at it long before we were in France and even the little Belgium. And look, all the world's colonial powers are complicit, too. And you know what? We all collectively owe the developing world foreign aid, as people call it, because of what we've done to them. So you see foreign aid as a matter of compensatory justice? Ken, that's absurd. No, no. Why? Why? Because the dominant powers, you know, the ones that have usurped all the world's wealth, will never own up to their crimes? Is that it? 
First of all, your view of who owes foreign aid to whom is inaccurate. Not all of today's rich countries were colonizers. Well, but the colonizers among the rich countries should pay the lion's share of the burdens. You can't deny that. Why shouldn't any country with more than it needs provide aid to people in desperate circumstances? Oh, well, if they're not complicit in all this poverty, then why, why should they have to pay? Because there's a duty to rescue? Because we have humanitarian obligations? And besides, Ken, you're just overestimating the responsibility of the rich countries for poverty. No, it sounds like you want to deny the history of colonialism and imperialism. No, I'm not denying the history of colonialism and imperialism, but I'm also not assuming that colonialism and imperialism are responsible for poverty everywhere. I mean, you're just assuming that because it fits your obsession with uh, the ills of the developed world. But, you know, we don't know what causes uh, poverty around the world. What if a country is poor because of their own mistakes or mismanagement? Look, I'm not willing to let the imperial colonial powers off the hook, but I'll play along. So what if they are? What if there are countries like that? So what? Look, it follows from your view that we don't have an obligation to help countries that have made mistakes. And and that's absurd. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're calling my view absurd? You're the one who's implying that every country with a surplus should give it to countries in need. Now, I think a lot of people find that absurd. Look, if you think simple humanitarianism is too demanding, mm. well, here's an alternative. Let's give aid on the basis of enlightened self-interest. It's both in our economic interest to alleviate poverty around the globe, and it's a matter of national security. That's not, come on, that can't, you, that's really your answer? Enlightened self-interest? Sure. Where there are places with no opportunities, with economic insecurity, war, instability, hunger, hopelessness, that's a natural breeding ground for terrorism. So one of the best ways to tackle global terrorism and improve our security is to lift people out of poverty. Yeah, but look, look at the consequences of that. You just criticized me in my obsession with imperialism for in, being indifferent to some poor countries. Well, what about countries that it's not in your, our enlightened self-interest to, to aid? You can imagine such countries. Do, you, do we just ignore their plight then? Look, m maybe we've hit an impasse here. Humanitarian aid falls on everyone, but it might not lead to development anyway. And neither enlightened self-interest nor compensatory justice seem to be demanding enough. Well, I, I'll agree with you here. We have reached an impasse. And to help us understand the sources of this impasse, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Liza Veal, to examine the shifting means and motives of foreign aid over time. She files this report. Starting from the top. Foreign aid begins with colonialism. Colonists put money into their colonies for one simple reason. It was their countries, don't forget. Rosalind Aben is from the University of Sussex. She's worked in international development policy and practice around the world. They were spending money on countries that they owned. Simple. So fast forward to when colonized countries start gaining their independence. Many of them demand redistribution of global resources as retribution for their exploitation. To them, foreign aid was a right not a gift. This is the Cold War, so the Soviet bloc and the Western nations are each trying to get all the developing countries on their side. Our hand of friendship is stretched out to all. One friendship does not come in the way of another. This led to a boom in development, with donor countries trying to buy support. 
The 1960s was called, officially by the United Nations, the development decade. Aben remembers when the first major highway was built from the coast to the capital in Sudan. As you drove along this lovely new tarmac road, people said, oh, now we're on the Yugoslav section. Oh, now we're on the <laughs> Italian bit. Aha, now it's the Chinese. And so if you were clever, you got as much money as, and support as possible from every country that was prepared to fund it. Aid during this time is almost by definition infrastructure and spending projects designed to stimulate the economy. The idea was get more money flowing, open up global markets, and everyone will be better off. But what people were noticing is that trickle-down wasn't working and that therefore aid should switch specifically to funding programs that targeted poor people. So, 1970s, new era. Meet the needs of the neediest, provide food, shelter, medicine, water. And this isn't politically motivated economic development. It's thinking about not just the potential foreign business partner, but his wife and child. The UN officially calls this the International Women's Decade. We women will no longer tolerate paternalism, for it deprives us of our selfhood. Some donor countries try to act out of a moral commitment, a sense of solidarity with poorer countries, a belief that global inequity requires redistribution of resources. But then comes the 80s. There's a massive global recession. Developing countries go into serious debt with donor countries and everyone gets stingy with aid money. We cannot continue any longer. Our wasteful ways at the expense of the workers of this land Instead, donors make a new deal. They say, we'll relieve your debt if you impose a new austerity budget. Only fund the bare essentials. That is, only fund the things we say you should. Now move to the 1990s, when the Cold War came to an end at the start. And at that moment, there was only one player in town. It was the West. And the West is now on a mission to help strengthen democracies in developing countries, which, even when you mean well, political engineering is a dicey prospect. Pause for an example. When Aben ran the British aid office in Bolivia in the 90s, she discovered that many poor people in Bolivia didn't have ID cards and couldn't vote, particularly indigenous people who spoke languages other than Spanish. So she wanted to fund a campaign to get everyone ID cards. But the Bolivian government said, that's not our program, that's not our priority. I mean, the government was right. Foreign aid shouldn't come in and throw their weight around. On the other hand, the logic is that you could fund people to help them get a vote, and then they might vote for a more equitable, socially just government policies. Which is actually what happened in the end. Evo Morales, an indigenous man, got elected in 2005, in part because of greater access to the vote. But clearly, on the whole, Rosalind Aben agrees that foreign aid has a checkered success record at best. And today, the West is not the only player in town. Countries like Brazil, China, India, Indonesia, Turkey have all become donor countries. And according to Aben, They realized that many of the governments they were talking to wanted to go back to the good old infrastructure projects. And so we got back to supporting infrastructure for economic growth without worrying too much about the equity outcome of that. Why do governments of developing countries prefer economic growth to social spending? What government doesn't? For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Veal.
Thanks for that fascinating tour of the history of uh, foreign aid from colonial times down to the present, Liza. I'm Ken Taylor. With me is my Stanford colleague, Deborah Satz. And today, we're thinking about foreign aid or foreign injury. We're joined now by John Welburn, who teaches economics at Dartmouth College and is the author of a forthcoming piece on the role of blockchain in developing markets. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, John. Thank you for having me. So, John, as an economist, there are all kinds of things that economists study. What got you interested in foreign aid specifically? I actually became interested in foreign aid as a Chinese student in China years ago. I was an undergraduate uh, living in Beijing, and uh, I double majored in economics and Chinese, and I became fascinated. I was in China in 1999, which was the 10-year anniversary of the Tiananmen event, and looking at how China was emerging from this uh, era of extreme poverty into one of tremendous economic growth. And my first job out of college was at a think tank in Washington, D.C., where I did nothing but study foreign aid um, for a full year before I went off to Ph.D. That's a great story. So, John, earlier Ken and I were debating whether and why there might be an obligation to give foreign aid of some kind to developing countries and to places with lots of poor people. So what's your view? Do you think we have a duty to give aid? I think that our first, I think that we should approach the issue of aid like a doctor. And doctor's motto is do no harm. And similarly with aid, our guiding principle should be do no harm. And while we can all talk about our our moral obligation to help those in need, um, the the tragedy of aid is that there are all kinds of unintended consequences they come along with writing checks and giving loans that have really left the developing world worse off than before the aid boom began in the 60s and 70s. So the, the leftists in me, okay, I'm, I am many things. Some days a leftist, some days a centrist, some days I think, oh, the heck with it all. But part of me says to that, that sounds a little bit like something I said in the beginning. You know, people used to say welfare payments make the poor worse off, right? Because it robs them of dignity and self-respect and all that sort of stuff. That sounds kind of, I mean, I hear a little bit of that, that somehow by giving them assistance that is their due, we do something bad to them. How, how could that be? Well, it, William Easterly at NYU has uh, done a great amount of research on this. And one of the things he shows that in, from 1970 to 2000, a trillion dollars were transferred from the developed world to the developing world. But after that process occurred, um, GDP per capita was lower in 2000 than it was in 1970. Not only that, the, the largest recipients of aid uh, are often the most corrupt countries. The great tragedy of aid is that funds are fungible. What that means is every dollar that you loan or you grant to a recipient country is a dollar that a recipient government does not have to, is not accountable for to its own voters. And that goes in and is then used in monument building and kickbacks. And when we, t- I heard you both talking about dictators and corruption in the developing world. All of those dictators were lavish recipients of these aid funds. So you've given us a kind of aggregate, in the aggregate, right, we don't see right. aid working. But obviously, it works in some places. I mean, there has been development. There have been governments who've used aid responsibly and built infrastructure. Right. You know, I mean, a doctor who was uh, saw a sick patient and did nothing would also, uh, you know, uh, not be uh, 
you know, performing well. And I agree with you, we don't want to do harm. But on the other hand, doing nothing is also, in some circumstances, not a satisfactory response. Why don't you respond to that briefly, John, and then we have to take a break. Right. Well, I just say there are all different kinds of aid, and giving money is is only one form. Mm -hmm. There's also something called targeted aid, which specifically addresses um, health crises, the AIDS crisis, malaria epidemics, and those programs have a lot more success than just writing a check or making a loan. Yes, you're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about foreign aid or injury with John Wellborn from Dartmouth College. What's the best way to alleviate global poverty? Should our government be giving development aid to foreign countries? And if so, what kind of aid should it be giving? Or should we do something else? Global poverty, foreign aid, and economic development, plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. Is helping to alleviate poverty in the developing world like saving our own lives? I'm Ken Taylor. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Deborah Satz, and today's topic is foreign aid. Our guest is John Welburn from Dartmouth College. So, John, I get that you you seem not to think that foreign aid is like the the main or even a significant answer to the problem of global poverty. But I, I want you. I want. I, I assume you have lots of different. Obje- objections, but I want you to encapsulate for me your main problem about foreign aid. What's your main uh, hesitation about foreign aid? Sure. The main problem with foreign aid is that it tends to fuel um, most development aid, what they call official development assistance, which is about $150 billion a year globally. $50 billion of that is from the U.S., um, tends to go directly to governments in these recipient countries. And then it feeds bureaucracies, it feeds, um, as I call it, monument building, um, and it feeds large infrastructure projects that don't have any necessarily organic uh, need for. And what it completely misses is the, the, the real elements needed for growth are good institutions, um, economic freedom, rule of law, property rights, an independent judiciary. And if you look at the data, so many developing poor developing countries in the world are some of the least free places in the world to live and be. Um, It's very hard to start a business. There are tremendously high tariffs, very high regulations. And that's the process by which an economy grows. So what kind of aid would you give then? Or how would you target aid in a better way? Well, that's a wonderful question. Uh, I would say, you know, China provides an interesting model for this because it used to be Um, So much of the aid debate has focused on whether or not we should be giving loans or we should be focusing on, you know, colonialism or these other things. But China lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in the 1980s and 90s simply by ending economic planning. So and the fundamental flaw of aid is that it's predicated on the idea that we can plan our way out of out so of poverty. So China's a great impossible. China's a great example, and it's a kind of an example that you can draw lots of different lessons from. But one of the things um, about uh, about China is that uh, it doesn't conform to just the standard um, program because, for example, it doesn't have you know rule of law, democratic institutions, a free press. 
as you know, you were saying that here are these other countries and they don't have that. And that's part of the problem. Of course, China doesn't have that. And yet, as you've just alluded to, it's lifted, um, you know, billion people out of uh, poverty. Right. Well, that's and that's a wonderful point. And, and there's actually a fantastic book about that that I'm uh, by Professor Yuan Wenang at, at University of Michigan. Um, but what China does have and what, it, what Deng Xiaoping recognized in the 80s is that for China to grow, it needed to end economic planning and needed to open itself up to trade with the West. And what, what developing countries need, what poverty countries need is trade, not aid. Um, so look, China lowered its trade barriers. And it's also, and this is another point I think it's worth making, tr- China is tremendously competitive. It's not like the Soviet Union. The Maoist model is very different from the Stalinist model. Uh, uh, China has 22 provinces competing with each other, uh, all for Western investment, and that has really fueled that growth. Uh, look, I, I'm going to grant you that China is in, in many ways a success story. I think that's a really complicated issue because I, I, we thought, I think people thought that the 20th century had settled whether a sort of top-down you know, authoritarian uh, societies would find the optimal solution to social problems or the democracies would and all that stuff and market economies. And I think China shows us that the jury is still out on what's the sort of optimal system is. I, I think that's a complicated question, but I want to go back to something. Sure. Okay. A lot of these places have weak governance of some kind or other, not democratic institutions, all that sort of stuff. But that's like saying to a patient, I'm going back to the doctor analogy, who comes into the emergency room. Well, look, you've got to improve your diet. You've got to start exercising more. You've got to get some sleep. But the patients on the, on the, in the emergency room right here, right now, aren't some of these countries like the equivalent of a patient who walks into the emergency room? And sure, we've got to do all these long-term fixes, but we can't just say, I'm sending you away. Well, that's a great point, and, I, and that would go back to what I was saying earlier, how there are different kinds of assistance you can provide. Um, targeted aid, which is the popular new program, focuses specifically on, on addressing health crises. For example, uh, Bill Gates, um, the Gates Foundation, is focused on um, really bounties for new technologies that will help the developing world. I think he's focused now on a toilet system that's sanitary and easy to implement. Um, PEPFAR, one of the mm-hmm. George W. Bush, President George W. Bush was very proud of the program PEPFAR, which focused on AIDS treatment and um, remediation in African countries, so let, which was tremendously successful. Let me push you a little on this. I'm, I'm myself pretty sympathetic to the idea of sometimes giving in-kind aid as opposed to cash aid. But one objection to in-kind aid, like bed nets or toilets, is that it's paternalistic that you're deciding how the aid ought to be best deployed rather than letting people themselves figure out how the aid should be deployed. It's like the kinds of objections you hear to food stamps. So I'm just wondering, you know, you're an economist. Economists tend not to like, you know, (laughs) in-kind distribution. So how do you think about that? Well, I would have two things to say that. First, I completely agree. And the difficulty, and this is a fundamental criticism of aid, is it's built upon this hubris that we... The West, the predominantly white West, know what's better for the benighted parts of the world. And that's something William Easterly wrote about in his latest book um, very eloquently about how all these in-kind transfer and mosquito nets are a great example of this. We have, we have distributed mosquito nets throughout sub-Saharan Africa to, develop, to address malaria. But most of those mosquito nets get used for fishing mm-hmm. and end up in the oceans, polluting the oceans with plastics. The other fundamental flaw 
about um, you know this this hubris part is that you know, going back to the medical analogy. Um, I'm sorry, I should take it one step back. USAID, which is the primary U.S. development agency, was built to transfer food aid to developing countries. And USAID sacks of grain are known throughout sub-Saharan Africa, particularly Somalia. But Michael Marin wrote a wonderful book in the 80s, a very a tragic book, who was a USAID, um, young man at USAID, about how f- those sacks of grain fueled the Somalian civil mm-hmm. war. Mm-hmm. Right. Basically, all in-kind transfers are fungible. And what would happen is that Less the ships fungible would than cash. Mobilization. Less fungible <laughs> right. than but, cash. But, but <laughs> I, I want to emphasize something that you said, because I, I, I was struck when digging into this. Uh, it struck me as a more more powerful thought than I had realized that there's a lot of people in the West who think that they can kind of rebuild these societies from their from their academic political purchases and there and it's a kind of flip side of the old imperialism like we are the technocratic elite we're going to tell these societies what they need to do how they need to do it and that kind of short circuits the kind of political social development on the ground i had never thought that but there seems to be something something to that thought. I don't know how much, but something well, to Ken, that, that is a very, you are very wise, Ken, and that's a great point. In Washington, we call them the development set. And the truth is, and, and this is a rather cynical point of view, the biggest proponents of AIDS are those in the West who, di- who directly benefit from its continued um, deployment in the developing world. And driving around in white Range Rovers throughout Africa for a couple of years sounds like a lot of fun. Sitting in an office in Washington, there are an awful lot of economists, and I'm one of them, looking for jobs, and development agencies hire them. <laughs> and what do they do? They sit in offices thinking about planning their way out of an economy. So, so isn't, one, isn't yeah. one uh, uh, lesson to learn from this that there isn't one a priori model for development that we have to be pragmatic you know, in so you know, if I think about China, I don't think that China is just a free market model. It's a pragmatic model where the state played some role in directing the market, but it also unleashed you know much more competition, and it was Absol- a pragmatic. That's, and that's a wonderful, absolutely, Deborah. And the, and the key here is no one model fits every country. Mm-hmm. Experimentation. Right. Um, what China did so well, and this is uh, part of the interesting uh, backstory to Xi Jinping, is his father, I believe, was one of the key um, uh, people who founded the city of Shenzhen, who said, we're going to build a, this charter city here, Shenzhen, which is going to play by the West's rules, and we're not going to interfere in it. And there were these charter cities built in China that became really factories. for All, all of your, your iPhones mm-hmm. are built in Shenzhen. And Paul Romer, who... Um, who recently won the Nobel Prize in economics, this is an idea that he is advocating strongly for the developing world of charter cities, places where laboratories of experimentation where different things can be tried. I think Deng famously said what mattered was not the color of the cat, but whether the cat catches the mice. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about foreign aid or injury, and we'd love to have you join this conversation and give us some aid. And Lisa from San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Lisa. What's your comment or question? Yeah, well, my comment, I'm, I'm a Chilean-American, and so Chile had um, a very, very important lesson for a lot of people in Latin America, because your guest uh, mentioned USAID. USAID has been involved in destabilizing um, governments that have tried to uh, gain independence from the West um, and from dictatorships that have been placed there by the U.S. government, by the CIA, 
and um, what he calls economic freedom really means impoverishment for the majority of the of the people of these new developing countries like Nicaragua, for example. Um, and and in reality, um, many of these governments have been hit by the so-called aid that they provide has had blackmail tied coercion to very severe austerity policies. Uh, what calls to mind is the confessions of an economic hitman about how the aid and how the credit system has been set up by uh, these major economic powers of the, of the world to really continue to subjugate the rest of the, the, the majority so, of the poor people of this Lisa, world. Lisa, that's a, that's a mouthful, and that's a lot. I'm going to give, uh, give John a chance to respond. John, what, what do you want to respond well, Lisa, to? Well, Lisa, I actually agree with, with 98% of what you said. I've read that excellent book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Everybody should read that book. And it is simply a fact, a, a tragedy, that no matter what our intentions are as voters— Aid is a tool of the political process, and it will always be that way. Uh, you could, John Bolton recently gave a speech at the Hoover Institution saying that developing countries have to choose between the U.S. and China. They can either, be, they can either receive loans from the World Bank or the U.S. or USAID, or can they receive them from China, but they can't be both. That goes back to one of the justifications. Deborah and I ran through these possible justifications, right? Compensatory justice. Uh, a duty to rescue countries, nations, are driven by what they perceive as their national interests. So it's pretty hard to get a complicated uh, national elite like we have in the United States to think, well, we're just doing this for humanitarian reasons. We're just doing this for compensatory justice reasons. And once it's about enlightened self-interest, it's a complicated stew of things. Wouldn't you agree? Indeed. And, and in fact, the top the, the top recipients of U.S. development assistance yes. are really political allies. Absolutely. Um, Pakistan, Israel, Egypt, um, other countries in, 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 in the Middle East are, um, that's really how the decision is made. I should add one thing, though. Even those sums are, are large that we give to those countries. But it doesn't take much to um, undermine the natural process of a country evolving. So even though an aid to a specific recipient country may seem small, the problem, a fundamental problem with aid is that the government receiving that, those funds in the form of loans, that's, they're now the partner of the donor country. They're not right. the partner of mm -hmm. voters in that country. Mm -hmm. They're not right. responsible to voters. And this is what Angus Deaton, who won the Nobel Prize in 2014, wrote about so eloquently, is that um, the, the fundamental problem with aid is it, is it messes with that natural democratic process, that process of discovery, and it interferes between the relationship between the, the of government course, and Of the course, government. in some countries we don't have democracy. So, uh, you well, know, it's yeah. so we always have to think about, you know, w what can we do in the context of non-democratic societies where the people don't have a voice in yeah, right. uh, the direction of their country. So, uh, we got a call. we have one more caller in line before the break. Uh, Raman uh, from Mendel Park. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Raman. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's very well phrased, but um, I'm just wondering if it would be more helpful, uh, you know, the aid would be better targeted if there was if people uh, in the countries that are providing the aid would have more of an interaction with the people that are that are in need of the aid, in other words, more more information. Mostly, the the people who ask for money just say, "We need this money," but you don't really know who you're giving it to. It's for. Yeah, good question, Robin. What do you think about about that, John? Great question. And and the difficulty is that, um, you know, in in economics, you can have two systems. You can have a price system, or you can have a non-price system, which is a bureaucracy. And to distribute aid, you need a bureaucracy. And the ch the, but the problem is you don't have prices giving you information about scarcity and value in, in the recipient part of the world. You're absolutely right that it would be a lot easier 
if if the donors had more connection with the folks on the ground. And, you know, World Bank would argue, oh, we do have people in those countries providing information, but it's very difficult um, having this chain of command through this complex bureaucracy. There's almost no solution to that. So let me ask so, you, wait, let, let me ahead. push back yeah. here for a second, because, you know, it does seem to me that China is upending a lot of our conventional wisdom about growth, because, as I say, when you look closely at China, you see a vibrant, amazing machine of development tied to a very large bureaucratic authoritarian society. And, um, you know, that that's a you could take that as a kind of experiment. And it's an experiment that at least I'm not saying that growth is the only thing we should care about, but on like what produces growth, it's showing us a different model. I think I'm I'm just going to agree with Deborah, John, and I'm going to ask you to hold your if, if you got a big thought, hold it. If you got a brief thought, let us hear it. I have a big thought, so let's hold it. <laughs> okay, so this is a big, big question. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're thinking about foreign aid with John Wellborn from Dartmouth College. Should foreign aid be more about more than transferring cash? What about eliminating corruption and strengthening the rule of law? Combating poverty around the world, when Philosophy Talk continues. Do developing nations have a duty to feed the world? I'm Ken Taylor, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Deborah Satz, and our guest is John Welburn, and we're talking about foreign aid. So, John, I want to give you a chance to give us your big thought on China. Deborah said, and I think she's right, China is like threatening to upend everything we thought we learned about economy and development and democracy and all that stuff in the 20th century. Our colleague uh, Fukuyama wrote this book, The End of History, but obviously history didn't end. Well, my favorite Fukuyama book is actually the book Trust, if you've read that, yeah. which is all about how the key to success in an economy is, is parties trusting each other. And to the extent that you can engender trust, you will have prosperity. Uh, the China lesson is hard for us to accept in the West, but it's really this is that democracy is not a precondition for growth, for poverty reduction. You don't have to have democracy. You don't have to have political freedom for people to get better off. And in fact, one of the great, I think, missteps of foreign aid in the developing world is by putting democracy first and then expecting growth to follow. And the truth is that in the Chinese process, local governments and provincial governments have competed for these these investment with the West um, that is what has disciplined them, um, not to be too corrupt um, and to sort of function in a, in, in, a, in a mode where they're promoting prosperity. But China has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty merely by embracing market forces, by ending economic planning. Um, many of you know about the famines in China, the 1950s and 1960s, the Great Leap Forward. Those were all terrible tragedies of economic planning and sort of the capricious hand of Maoism. By ending that in 1978, when Deng took power, um, China decided, listen, we're not, the party is not going to surrender control. We're going to remain an, an autocracy with a single party. But we are going to embrace market forces. We're going to embrace a price system. We're not going to allow political freedom or democracy, but we are going to 
make it our goal. This, we we right, recognize but the on fact the other hand, you know, China did protect state enterprises. It, you know, tried to correct. You know, it has corrected market failures. It's tried to help. Um, uh, infant industries learn, you know, how to manage better. Um, so it's not just a story of free markets. It's a story of, you know, as I said, kind of an, uh, a combined, um, you know, beyond economics 101, some free markets, some state, uh, you know, uh, guidance and regulation, and no freedom, no free press. So look, look, that's a depressing, that's a depressing <laughs> tale. I know you're trying to say, well, there's a, it's not just free markets, and the the apostles of free markets, you know, can't just turn to China. But that's a depressing, because look, the total package of mark a mixed economy plus t- political liberalism, democratic accountability. I mean. I, I want to believe that that's a humanly superior total package. And you're telling me, well, you know, how much is that freedom thing really worth when uh, when you can't, sp- I mean, capitalism apparently has failed to spread the wealth, right? It's failed to uh, eliminate uh, rampant inequality. D- d- democracy all over the world is under some kind of pressure because of the rise of populist and all this sort of stuff. You guys are telling me that... Uh, Gosh, I may I should not be so sanguine about the triumph of demo, the combination of mixed economies. I'm not going to say pure market economies, but some mixed economies plus political liberalism. I shouldn't be so sanguine about that. Uh, is that what you're well, telling me, sure John? I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. I think that we have to be honest about where China is today. Yes, tremendous wealth has been created. Um, you know, wealth is something that that is created. It's not necessarily really transferred around in this zero sum game. Um, but there is tremendous inequality in China. The eastern mm-hmm. coastal cities yeah, and provinces absolutely. are very wealthy. But if you go inland, you'll, you'll find, you'll encounter grinding poverty, virtually no quality public services, um, lots of civil unrest, um, the further west you go, really. And so it is not a paragon of, of, of necessarily no, how no, to but run it, a but the But the dramatic decrease in, you know, absolute poverty around the world, you you can't tell that story without telling the story of China. Yeah. You so, know, that that's indeed. the, you know, it's a, both an optimistic story in one way, which is, you know, a billion people being lifted out of, you know, uh, absolute poverty. And at the same time, there is a cautionary note of it, which is um, you get that growth with uh, authoritarian government. And I should add a point there that I think is worth mentioning, that that, the party recognized early on that to get rich is glorious, as they say, uh-huh. and par- to be a member of the of the Communist Party is to be basically have the keys to a very uh, an exclusive group of very rich people, and the party has gotten tremendously rich, uh-huh. and so the party has recognized that 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 this is their path to maintain power. And Xi Jinping, China is becoming much less politically free now. There was this hope, I think, in mm-hmm. the early 2000s among a lot of economists yeah. like myself that China was going to continue on this path and eventually, um, you know, toy with political freedom. Right. And the opposite is occurring. Right. In so fact, I mean, let's let a, a caller in here. A- a- Anna from Oakland. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Anna. Hi. Um, I'm just wondering um, what models of foreign aid is the U.S. looking at currently to make it more effective? 
Uh, thanks for the question. Is the U.S. foreign aid uh, trying to make itself more effective? Are they reflective about these practices on uh, the, these days? John? Well, you know, it, it, there uh, there's always this debate in Washington, and, and the truth is, the debate was really settled in the last decade. Um, but it's going to keep happening. What Washington has re- accepted is that this will keep happening. We will keep spending about fifty billion a year in the developing world, whether it's effective or not. And nowadays, the argument is we have to do it for China. I should just add, there is a, a prominent economist at Princeton, Esther Duflo. She argues she's at MIT. Ex- she's at MIT. MIT, I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she, she went to Princeton, but she's at MIT. Um, she argues in favor of something called experimentation. Right. And the idea that we should try exp- uh, controlled experiments in different countries and use the results of those controlled experiments to determine how we allocate funds. And what works in Senegal, for example, may not necessarily right. work in so I was Right. So I was just going to ask you about that, and that goes back to your medical analogy, that you know a lot of economists now have become much more experimental and are looking at things like random controlled trials to see right. if you give people bed nets or you give them, you know, if you charge them 25 cents for a bed net, does that make a difference as opposed to giving them uh, a free bed net? So I think that's an interesting turn. There's always the question, uh, how much can you generalize from these small scale which is what um, I'm experiments? Going, which is what I'm actually going to invite you to do, sort of. I'm going to make you the czar of the world, John. You are you are in charge of uh, alleviating global poverty around the world, and you get uh, you have plenary powers. You can dictate to the world, like the Chinese Communist Party, what's going to happen. What's the first thing you're going to do with your with your plenary powers, and you're going to alleviate this problem of global poverty? Great question. So I would do three things. The first thing that I would do was would be eliminate virtually all trade barriers. What the developing world needs is trade, not aid. Every country, every person in every country. In economics, we have this principle of specialization. Adam Smith wrote about this very yeah. well. Every country does something well, and, but they're not all the same. And, but the, the key challenge in Europe is um, just as bad as the U.S. about this. We have tremendously high trade barriers with the developing world. Um, huge tariffs protecting domestic industries in European countries. And that really hits African and Middle Eastern countries and Asian countries very hard. The fact that they can't sell, export their goods, things they're good at growing okay. abroad. First thing, trade not aid. Next thing. Trade not aid. The second thing is, and this is what the other Nobel Prize this year addressed from Paul Samuelson, is about climate change. The world is really moving into a very scary place with global carbon levels um, reaching um, levels not seen since the dinosaurs. And what the world needs is a global carbon tax. Yeah. And as an economist, I feel uh, this is something called the Pigouvian tax, mm-hmm. a sin tax, but it is really the only effective way to reduce atmospheric carbon is okay. a global tax. And on the carbon. third? And the third, trade not aid, global carbon tax, and the third? The third thing is this very exciting new technology called blockchain. And that's something that I'm writing about recently. Blockchain is really a, a think of an accounting ledger. A blockchain is a ledger that we all share copies of. And we can all write to that ledger, and the ledger gets confirmed and updated, but nobody can change it. It's encrypted, and it becomes immutable. So can I and just, uh, I want to um, just push on one thing, and then we're, we have so many callers, which is great, um, <laughs> which is, you know, so you're rightly, I think, skeptical of, you know, Washington consensus, a priori views, that there's one solution, one model fits everywhere, but you've just given us one model that you think fits everywhere. 
And so I'm just wondering, you know, is that... You mean the, bl- the, you mean the blockchain model? No, or the, or all the three. The, the trade, not aid. Um, is that a kind of hubris? Could there be countries in which, you know, there were countries that developed, for example, by nurturing their domestic industries and having trade barriers? Um, the, you know, the so-called Asian tigers. There have been some examples yeah. of that, but the, there, are, there are far more examples of countries to, to protecting domestic industries and taxing themselves to death. And really, the, the way China grew is by opening itself up to the West um, to become the manufacturing center of the world. And I think it'd be, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a good argument okay. that high trade barriers, and, and I should say this is something the development set did argue in favor of in the 1970s and 80s, that you needed high trade barriers to protect domestic industries. So, so John, I'm going to let one last caller in here, Greg from Seattle, all the way from Seattle. You must be listening to us online, Greg. Welcome to Philosophy Talk. What's your comment or question? I am, thank you. My question was around uh, corruption in graft and whether there's just an accepted level that's just part of doing business mm-hmm. in the aid world. There's some level that's just not tenable or if that's, if that's tracked. So, good question. What do you think, John? Well, <laughs> I used to have a, it's funny you ask that. I used to have a friend who, who was the inspector general of the IMF, and um, he told me once that we can't imagine the levels of corruption that occur um, when these when these monies are transferred abroad, and I think it just is in Washington accepted that you're going to, when you're sending pallets of money, when you're sending loans, that you're going to have to write some amount of it off, and that's a tragic thing. I should add something else: that if you're loaning money to the government of a developing country, there's no guarantee that that government's going to be allowed to pay it off, be around to pay it off in ten years or twenty years. So, and so very often you have a recipient country overborrow, spend a lot of that money on infrastructure projects it doesn't need, with kickbacks to friendly industries, and then those guys are gone. And the money's in Swiss bank accounts and the people are left paying back the mm-hmm. debt. So John, on that uplifting note <laughs> <laughs> that corruption is everywhere. I'm gonna thank you for joining us. You've aided my thoughts and I hope Deborah's thoughts yes. greatly. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Our guest has been John Wellborn. He's an economist from Dartmouth uh, College. Have you got one final thought here? Uh, this is not an uplifting uh, <laughs> story. I mean, there's, it's a, I think aid is a complex topic um, that no soundbite can fully capture both the complexity of what works and are the nature of our obligations. I, I think you're right, and I think actually one of the last couple of things that John said, especially about global warming, because the way these two things interact is something Very we important. didn't touch on. Because right. here's one of the things that, about, that is about to happen if we don't tackle global warming. Huge swaths of the Earth are going to have to be depopulated. People are going to move all over the world, and it's going to change the economies and politics of communities on an unimaginable scale. So we got some huge We've got problems. some political problems and we've got some empirical problems. There's a lot more we have to learn. Yeah, so this conversation continues at Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers where our motto is, get this, cogito ergo blogo. I think, therefore I blog. We're sorry, Descartes. You can also become a partner in that community by visiting our website, philosophytalk.org. And if you have a question that wasn't addressed in today's show, we'd love to hear from you. Send it to us at comments at philosophytalk.org, and we might feature it on the blog. And now for someone who requires no aid, foreign or domestic, it's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. 
Ian Scholes. Looking at the Sunday morning chat shows, the dwindling editorial pages of America, the output of think tanks, white papers, the indexes of memoirs by former secretaries of state, defense, and treasury, you will find many mixed emotions around American aid to foreign countries. Responses are usually critical, which is to be expected. After all, what nation has been proven to prosper just because we gave them money? The opposite is generally true. You're helping people rebuild a home, fight a war, put out a fire. When goals are fuzzy, allocation gets fuzzy, outcomes uncertain, and grifters grift, the skimmers skim, the beggars beg, forelocks get tugged, and before you know it, the media are calling Africa hopeless once again. Just once, I'd like to see Africa call us hopeless. See how we like it. Not as funny when the shoe is on the other foot, if they even have shoes. Probably spend all our aid money on big screen TVs and fripperies. The fact is, though, if there has been a decline in malaria, tuberculosis, AIDS, and stunted growth, that still doesn't give us bragging rights. Policy-wise, strategically, we want a country to have parades and tall buildings with great jobs and theme parks and mighty freeways and big cars. But instead, we give money for stuff that makes everybody gloomy, no matter how you cut it. Not as many people are dying in the swamp as they used to. Okay, hooray. Another problem with foreign aid is that we're awfully judgy. Do these countries deserve this money? And we're also judgy about who gives the money. Multilateral givers may have a sinister globalist agenda. On the other hand, an individual NGO may have a sinister left-leaning or fascist agenda, all leading to the discussion of who should what and when, and what does that mean in real dollars. On top of all that, there's our attitude towards money itself. We love it when rich people get it. We give them tax breaks so they can buy another yacht and register it in the Cayman so they don't have to pay taxes on that either. But we hate it when poor people get money because they'll just spend it on big screen TVs and fripperies. That's why you give them food stamps instead, but not for food they might like, like peanut butter or smoked salmon. Plain peanut butter and Wonder Bread, that's it. If there's a problem, we are reluctant to throw money at it, even if the problem is not enough money. This leads to what is called moral hazards, frippery-generating behavior. President Trump threatened to stop aid to Guatemala because of the so-called caravan, about to either invade or knock at the door of a southern border. Many in that caravan are from Guatemala, fleeing because of conditions there, which will probably be worse if the U.S. stops giving aid. Ironic. Strangely, any poor conditions in Guatemala are probably caused by drug cartels who have gotten rich selling drugs to Americans. So another kind of foreign aid providing big-screen TVs to Central American drug lords. This wealth apparently does not trickle down. What about remittances? Many foreigners come to the U.S. in search of jobs and send money back to where they came from. Does that count as foreign aid? Apparently, remittances don't have a huge effect on the local economies, mainly because it's used for food, shelter, and other basic expenses. Houses, cars, couches, and other fripperies remain on wish lists. Also, critics say the remitted don't even look for jobs because Cousin Ernie in America is sending them all the money they need. And there's your moral hazard right there. So here's an idea. Why don't we just throw open our borders to Guatemala, for example, for two years? All the Guatemalans, except for bank tellers, come here, take all the jobs, and send most of the money back to the banks in Guatemala. Since there's nobody there to frippery the money away, it'll build up interest and save the banks. Then, at the end of the period, all the Guatemalans will return home to nice fat bank accounts and enough money to make a down payment on a house, which we will gladly sell them through a foreign direct investment or two, and then foreclose and they miss a payment, the IMF will step in, and Goldman Sachs will just take over the country. Win, win, win. Why aren't I running the world? I have no idea. Is there a remittance for that? Who pays? I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW Local Public Radio San Francisco and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2018. Our executive producers are David Demarest and Tina Pamentor. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Cindy Prince-Baum is our director of marketing. Thanks also to Merle Kessler, Angela Johnston, and Lauren Schechter. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from Stanford University and from the partners at our online community of thinkers. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. 
I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. Now, how about lending this country $20 million, you old skinflint? $20 million is a lot of money. I should have to take that up with my Minister of Finance. Well, in the meantime, could you let me have $12 until payday? $12? Don't be scared. You'll get it back. I'll give you my personal note for 90 days. If it isn't paid by then, you can keep the note.